Could we turn please to Philippians chapter 2 for um, our reading this morning. Philippians chapter 2, first several verses there. We've been um, on our Sunday evenings a few times over the last several months looking into chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians and uh, it's, an, it's a wonderful introduction to um, uh, what uh, Thompson of Thompson Chain Reference Bible fame refers to a love letter from the Apostle to uh, his beloved congregation there in Philippi. And um, we notice that no fewer than six times in chapter 1 reference is made to the gospel and uh, we've had a look at a few of the uh, elements of Paul's references there first of all in verse 5 to the fellowship in the gospel the significance that the apostle attaches to every believer's participation in the promulgation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in accordance um, with the great commission we looked at verse uh, 12 um, a little bit too at the reference to the furtherance of the gospel, how the, um, the church at Philippi was involved in the implementation of the Great Commission and um, noticed that Paul gave a definition in, the le- in a corresponding letter to the Corinthian church about what constituted the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he rose again according to the scriptures. Saw that in chapter uh, 1 verse 12. And uh, a third consideration, we looked at chapter 27 where he speaks of the faith of the gospel. And uh, most of the authorities see this as a fairly encompassing um, expression that he uses. But put all this together and we've got um, a very clear set of statements at the commencement of this letter, which I might say is a beautifully coherent document. It leads forward from one point to the next to the next and, and so on. And so against that background, we come to uh, chapter 2, and um, chapter 2 commences with a connecting word. And uh, these we always take notice of, the word here, it, therefore... And he's, he's been mentioning important matters and he's going to follow that with important matters and they're linked by that word, therefore. We go back just before we enter into chapter 2 to um, the last verse of chapter 1 where he speaks about having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He's making it clear to his readers that they are not involved in uh, just a social exercise in becoming members of the body of Christ and becoming Christian believers. They are being incorporated into a huge, um, we might say, a cosmic conflict. And um, he, he's a long way away from them geographically, but they are united in this purpose of carrying forward the uh, message of the gospel. I'll just read the first 11 verses. We won't attempt to deal with all of them, um, but maybe just the first four verses. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfil my joy 
by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In introducing um, his uh, commentary on this passage, Stephen Alford says this about chapter 2 of um, the book of the the Led to the Philippians. He says, Without hesitation we can say that nothing in Holy Scripture compares with the truth of the condescending grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The language is so exquisite and the message so explicit that an attempt at exposition almost seems presumptuous. In these first four verses, however, we have the standard of Christian living positively revealed in two propositions. When I read that um, commentary, um, I thought, uh, dare we even start uh, looking into the passage where an authority such as Stephen Alford um, makes that comment. And I was genuinely tempted to say what we'll do today is just read this letter from beginning to end uh, without note or comment but I've never had the courage to quite do that Um, but I think it would be helpful to us it's not a long letter to read it's a coherent document and uh, if we follow the the connecting prompts in it we can actually do that um, quite readily You'll, you'll notice as we go through, we've noticed firstly the connection between the content of, verse, uh, of chapter 1 and chapter 2 with the therefore. And uh, he carries it forward again at verse 12 with another therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and so on. And by the time we get to chapter, the beginning of chapter 3, finally, my brethren, so again, it's a, um, a break in the letter where one thing leads to another. As a matter of fact, that's not his final, finally, because, um, again, um, where is it? Further over, he's got another finally. Um, I've lost it for the time being. But anyway, the the letter itself lends itself to a, a, a reading right through and follow the thread of what the Apostle is saying. But we'll just have a look at these first couple of verses this morning. First of all, um, to have a look at what we might call the spiritual motivations for us for living the Christian life the way that he is 
encouraging the Philippians to do, both as individuals and, of course, as a local church. He says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies in the old King James, fulfil you my joy, the first couple of verses. And that little word, if, that we've got there, it does not indicate that he's putting a question to us. Um, we sometimes say, um, if I do this, what happens? And so it's not that kind of a question. This is a proposition, and that word literally means since or because, and some of the translations read along those lines. Because there is consolation in Christ, because there is comfort of love, and so on. Fulfill my joy. And if we look at what he's saying here, we can see that he's suggesting that there are at least um, two sets of motivations for us. Internal motivations for our Christian walk and witness and service, and external ones and internal ones. Firstly, a look at the external ones that he mentions. If there be, any there, if there be therefore, any consola- consolation in Christ if any fellowship in the spirit. So he gathers up a couple of um, external things. Firstly, there's the exhortation of the Son of God, if any consolation in Christ. Well, the term consolation, it itself lends itself to a number of applications, but here it suggests that the word means exhortation. If there's any um, exhortation, if there is the, in the exhortation of the Son of God, the consolation in Christ. So the first motivation that we might look for um, is the state, uh, statements of our Lord and Saviour himself about our Christian living. And uh, one that comes to mind is John fourteen fifteen. For example, if you love me, keep my commandments. And... Uh, it was interesting in, in looking through some of the literature dealing with that, um, I came across this little story about F.B. Meyer and C.T. Studd about keeping his commandments. And I'll just read it to you if you don't mind as I got it. On one occasion, Dr. F.B. Meyer shared a room with C.T. Studd during a spiritual life conference. Meyer woke at about 7am and saw the bent figure of Stud against the light of a flickering candle poring over his Bible. How long have you been up, Charlie? asked Meyer. Since four o'clock, came the reply. What on earth have you been doing for three hours? insisted Meyer. Stud's answer was rather shattering. He said, quote, I have been going through my New Testament afresh in the light of the words of our Saviour, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I've been checking off every command that I have had the joy of obeying and crossing off every commandment that I've failed to obey, and my heart is ashamed. Now that's, that's one of the great servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the um, outstanding missionaries of all time. And uh, he would say that in regard to this exhortation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love me, 
keep my commandments. As we looked at um, part of the of chapter one, we were reminded in one instance of a um, pastor who was approached by a member of his congregation who said to him, look, my interest in the word of God seems to have been waning. I don't have the same verve and, uh, and um, loving concern and desire for the word. What should I do? And the pastor wisely said to this inquirer, start reading your New Testament again and as soon as you come to a command, do it. Obey it. And this person went away and came back a couple of weeks later with the um, joy of the Lord radiating from her face and um, in the conversation she had. This had been a real blessing to her to make sure that where there's a clear instruction, exhortation, command, call it what we will, in the word of God, that there was obedience on her part to that what she came across, to do it, and then to proceed. Well, that's um, the, the first of the external motivations. Um, the second is what we could call the inspiration that comes from the Holy Spirit, if any fellowship of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God, of course, desires to help us to live out the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Apostle says, think of what you share in the life of the Spirit, as it were. The power of the Spirit, the grace of the Spirit, the love of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit, the courage of the Spirit. Uh, that last mentioned uh, ashish is one that you need to bear in mind as, we, as you press on in the Christian walk and your determination to serve our Lord. But in all of these, we are dependent on that ministry of our Lord the Holy Spirit, the enabling power. Um, later, in the later in this book, this letter, the Apostle said that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. If he gives a task, he gives the enabling. If he entrusts a ministry, he gives the capability to carry that into effect. And the grace of the Spirit of God. We could say perhaps the graces of the Spirit of God, those lovely, that ninefold set of graces constituting the fruit of the Spirit of God, the love and the joy and the peace and so on. And the wisdom of the Spirit, um, which um, James exhorts us, if we find ourselves lacking in it, to ask for it. And the Lord's not going to knock us back um, and repudiate such a request. So these, these enablings the power and the grace and the love and the wisdom and the courage that is needed in the Christian walk and in the Christian warfare to which we are all called is provided for us in the person of our Lord, the Holy Spirit. So we've got those two um, motivations, if we could call them external um, motivations, and internally, he says at verse 1, if any comfort of love if any bowels and mercies. Um, here we have the persuasion of a responsive love being mentioned. Um, why, why can we have a loving, compassionate heart? We love because he first loved us. 
we don't, we're not good, we're not capable of generating what we're talking about here. We are capable of receiving and being exercised by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Bishop Lightfoot translates this rather beautifully. He says, If there be any inner persuasion of love, if we have experienced the love of God's Son, we ought to love him in return, and we ought to love love one another. The greatest inward motivation for holy living is our response to the Calvary love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an inwrought thing that is embedded within us by the Holy Spirit of God and this um, responsive love that he's looking for is not something that we particularly generate by our own capability or learning or um, refining of our characters in behaviour. It's something of the Lord. The thought behind these words is that of pity, sympathy or the expression of genuine compassion for others. Christ looked upon men and women and saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. Mark 6.34 Just as he wanted to bind up the wounds and broken hearts of those who came to him. And I was thinking a bit about that. Um, When we see the grossness of um, the manifestations of evil in our society and so on, we can take aim at the, in our minds at the evil people, the activities that are so vile and hateful to the Lord. I wonder if our Lord Jesus, as he looked upon them, the crowds, saw them all, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, so on, as sheep without a shepherd. I'm inclined to think that he may have, because remember his word, his first word from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was a different spirit about this blessed saviour of ours, and here we're being exhorted um, to this bowels of mercies, comfort of love, and so on, as the second of the motivations that we might have for serving and uh, representing him here below. The other side of it, the second part of what I was wanting to uh, share this morning was about the corresponding spiritual obligations, verses 2 to 4. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Well, we can discern probably a few elements in that couple of verses. First of all, the exhortation to a life of harmony amongst those who are the Lord's people. Um, Paul has something to say about this in every one of his um, epistles, actually, it was a bit of a, an eye-opener to me to see how often he made reference to this sort of thing. There's no, I don't sense any suggestion that there was a particular problem in Philippi, although there 
there's later on reference to a couple of sisters, but there was no doctrinal thing here. There was no um, big shift. There was no, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas. There wasn't that sort of thing at Philippi. But he's asking them to ensure a life of harmony. It seems like a preemptive piece of advice to me that um, he wanted them to be aware, alert to the possibilities of our humanity getting in the, ro- in the road of our spiritual service. He says, uh, at verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He's asking him to fill up his cup of joy by living in harmony. And he clearly means one in a number of ways. One purpose, be like-minded. Um, I suppose the supreme purpose of every local church is the glory of God, to give glory to God in all things. Um, and so he's asking them to be clear about that one purpose. We are here we are existent as a group of the Lord's people. We, we exist as individual Christians and as Christian families that God should be glorified. We need to have that, that purpose, that foundational objective clear. That it's not, um, we're not here for personal gain or benefit or aggrandizement or something like that. So he's asking them, to have one purpose and be like-minded. And, I mean, we can, he, deli- he um, develops this further over in 1 Corinthians 10, at verse 31, where he's arguing a different set of factors, but came up with, comes up with a similar conclusion. Whatever, therefore, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We're here that our gracious and glorious God and Saviour should be uplifted and magnified. Oneness in purpose and oneness of passion, having the same love, he says. The thought here is of cherishing a mutual and reciprocal affection so that the united effect is basically a passionate one. When the love of God is multiplied in the corporate life of a fellowship, one commentator says the impact can be immeasurable. Well, Tom mentioned this morning something about the impact in, um, in those days immediately after the, uh, the day of Pentecost when people were coming to Christ in their thousands um, being converted and that where there was that unity, unity of purpose. Unity, oneness of purpose, oneness of passion and oneness of power. Um, incidentally, just back to that, purpose, that one about passion, um, it was one of the marks of the early Christian church and may it, be, may it please God be the mark of us as a congregation where people can say, see how these Christians love one another. What a lovely way to be identified. Not, by, not only by our statement of faith or uh, anything that we publish, but by the love that's manifested from one to the other to the other between the Lord's people. 
It's a, a, a means of testimony. It's a part of the comprehensive program of promulgating the gospel of Christ, the uniqueness of the life of Christ being manifested in people who not being out to get something out of each other but whose love for each other and wanting to give for one another. Oneness of power. One of one accord, he says, and the idea implicit in that word is of harnessing, uniting our energies so that there's no waste and so that things can be achieved that otherwise cannot be. It reminded me of our earlier years when we were farming down the road here and we had one old horse that we used to do the scuffling between the rows of whatever crops we had in and uh, he was capable of that, pulling a scarifier, but um, he could not by himself pull a decent-sized moldboard plough that turns the ground over and so on. But our neighbour had a horse too, who was about the same in capability. Um, it's no, no use borrowing him, but we, we put them together in a joint harness and uh, we were able to do um, the ploughing that otherwise we could not have done. One couldn't do it. And that, that sort of thing is involved here. Um, and there's plenty of illustrations from local life about that. Being together, the individual member of a church in the unity of the spirit will find that there is capability to serve the Lord in ways that any one of us um, could not. And this has been proved, of course, down through the centuries of uh, Christian life. But also oneness of program. Did you notice um, in verse 2? Of one mind or minding the one thing. Um, the one thing here is presumably what he's led us from in chapter 1, the promulgation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of one mind, minding the one thing, getting this message of full and free salvation for repentant sinners to a needy, desperately needy world. We need that um, oneness of program. And then it goes on about a life of humility. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. I've got a quote here from Dr Andrew Murray uh, and he says this, the outliving of true holiness is humility. The outliving of true holiness is humility. I thought about that and uh, can I quote that reasonably and it's, it's right. The Lord Jesus in introducing his manifesto for his kingdom in, in the um, great sermon on the mount, the first step that he mentions in the, the new way of life is um, those who are poor in spirit. That is, a humble person. And the picture behind that, the contemporary picture of that day was of a person who was so devoid of capacity as to resources and so devoid of capability of achieving what he needed to do or meeting the needs of his family was a person with one hand across his face 
so that his identity wouldn't be seen, so, so ashamed of himself having to do so, and one hand out to receive a gift from a benefactor. That was the commencement of our Lord Jesus Christ's manifesto for the kingdom of God that he was introducing. And the apostle here is introducing that, or he's taking up that thought, let nothing be done through strife, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. He goes, let nothing be done through strife. Well, strife is when people assert their personal rights and so on and uh, try and get gain for themselves. And we'll just make the, make the point that it also involves not only <clears throat> life of harmony, humility, but also of helpfulness. We won't have time to go into that this morning, but it means that we are committed to the benefit of those about us to the, the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the benefit of those with whom we have contact entrusted to us in the world, and that we are those who noted for what they do in being of help to those things. So there we have it, just a few thoughts from those opening verses of chapter 2. Um, it leads immediately, of course, into the blessed truths that, that uh, await us further on with see the exhortations of commands of our Lord about factors, outsiders and so on. But it goes through to the immediate reference now to the person and work and glory and future glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that will have to wait for another time. But thank God that we have these verses exhorting us to the quality of Christian life and testimony that are consistent with the words of our Lord and Saviour when he was ministering and which have been recorded to us here and which have corresponding words exhorted to each of the uh, churches to which the Apostle wrote his letters. So we take up the words from um, uh, chapter 2 of the book of the Revelation, He who has ears to hear, let us hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name this morning. We thank you for the privilege of remembering together the person and work, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the privilege of looking at your precious word to guide us in our Christian walk and witness. And we pray that you will take us forward individually as a church, as families, take us forward in the fullness of the blessing of your precious gospel. For we ask these mercies, giving you our thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.